joyful, joyful, we adore thee. God of glory, Lord of love. You know, friends, I almost wish I want to sing that song. Can we do that? A cappella, I know I'm not supposed to do this. Chris, thank you for leading us in the prayer. Could you be on the piano and let's, let's sing that again? I know we're going to do something unexpected. But we're going to talk about the resurrection. One of the big things about the resurrection is the joy the disciples experienced. Let's, let's sing that song together. Page 10 in your bulletin. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee, opening to the sun above. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness, drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness, fill us with the light of day. Amen. You may be seated. That was just to make sure we don't fall into the routine of the service sometimes. Make sure that our hearts are filled with joy as we prepare to talk about the resurrection. Um, Christopher Henselman is with us. Thank you, Christopher. And we pray that God blesses you in our midst this morning as well. Friends, last week, for the last two Sundays, we have talked about one of the major themes emphasized in the Gospel of John, chapter 18 and 19, as we talked about the death and, uh, and, and burial of our Lord. And that is the theme of kingship. Through his arrest, through his death, one of the themes that came out is that Christ is king. But just because he claimed to be king, just because others claimed about him to be king, just because Pilate wrote on that cross, King of the Jews, doesn't mean that he was necessarily. After all, we all like to have good impressions about ourselves, don't we? Right? And most often than not, they're just vain impressions. But in the case of Jesus, it wasn't. He truly is the king. He truly was the king. He truly will be the king. And the one thing that will prove all that is the resurrection. The resurrection makes Jesus to be an incompletely different category than all the other founders of all other religions. One of the reasons why Christianity can claim to be the only way to God is because among all the other founders of the other religions, Jesus is the only one who conquered death. And despite his death on a cross, he proves, he proves his claim to divine kingship by his resurrection. When we'll have another founder of another religion do the same, we can talk. Until then, we think Christianity is the only way to God because Jesus has shown us the way. This morning, dear friends, I encourage you to open Scripture to John chapter 20 as we look at the theme of the resurrection, proof of divine kingship. John chapter 20. If you are new to our church this morning, you're visiting us, perhaps you may not have a Bible, we encourage you to find the Bible in front of you. 
looks a, a little red Bible. You may find our passage on page number 942. And if you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to take our Bible home with you. Have it. And we'd love for you to have it and read it. John chapter 20, verse 1. The word of the Lord is the following. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They had taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them, that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, the doors locked for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, 
they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So these other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have, seen, who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. How glorious. Amen. Let's ask the Lord to bless us as we will hear his word explained. And may his Holy Spirit give us the understanding we need so that we may understand what and, and do and respond to his word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, how amazing is your word. How beautiful is the witness about Christ. How frightening is his authority. When we're reminded that he conquered even death, Father, I pray that you would build our faith through your word this morning. I pray that you'd build up your own people to be faithful witnesses to the power of Christ's resurrection. I pray this in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit for your glory. Amen. Oh, friends, chapter 20 is a great chapter of the gospel of John. Chapter 20 is sort of a, of a climax of how all, all that has happened for the last two chapters come to be unfolded. Chapter 20, we see an interesting verse at the end of this chapter. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is a Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Friends, this is why this entire gospel was written. To answer this question, who is the Christ? The question is not just who is Jesus, but who is the Christ? Do you know what the word Christ means? It's not a name. It's a title. A name would be like, like Samuel would be a name, but pastor would be a title. The word Christ is a title. It's not a name. It means, it, it comes from the Jewish word, from the Hebrew word Messiah, and it literally means the anointed king. God's anointed king. The question the Gospel of John asks and seeks to answer is, who is the anointed king? 
And the answer the gospel gives is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing in his name, you may have life. We may have life. Friends, that's a great question that this gospel has been trying to tell us from the very beginning by telling us all the signs that this Jesus has done. These were just pointers to say Jesus is the anointed king. Oh, friends, everything Jesus has done is to, be, to show this truth. But the most compelling evidence, the final of the greatest miracles, was his own resurrection. Not just his coming back to life, as he did in the case of Lazarus. Jesus brought Lazarus from the tomb just to, to give him a few more years to live, to postpone his natural death. That's not the kind of resurrection Jesus encountered. He actually overcame death forever and ever and ever and ever. Friends, the resurrection is the greatest truth, the greatest result of the gospel that we claim. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and if Christ had not raised our preaching, it's useless. Some people like that. Preaching that's useless. Paul says there's only one reason why our preaching would be useless if Christ had not resurrected from the dead. But then he goes on and says, so would be your faith. Your faith would be just as useless. And then in verse 17, Paul says, if Christ had not risen, your faith is futile, and worst of all, you're still in your sins. This is how critical the resurrection is. Without the resurrection, not only we would preach in vain, not only our faith would be of no use, but we would be still in our, in our sins. That's a worse. That's a worse. Oh, friend, the Christian life, the life united with Christ, is neither boring nor a missing out of all the things this world could offer us. It's not a life of do's and don'ts. It's quite the opposite. It's a partaking of the power of the resurrection, of taking us out of sin, of overcoming sin and death and the judgment to come. But as glorious as his resurrection is, as critical as his resurrection is for our Christian lives, for our faith, when we examine how it came about, when we examine how it was received, we'll be shocked. For it was received with difficulty. It was received with suspicion, even by the disciples. So as we look at chapter 20 of this gospel, let's look at the way in which the resurrection has challenged the disciples. Actually, we'll look at three things. The challenge to believe the resurrection, even for the disciples. The challenge to believe the resurrection. Then we'll look at the purpose of the resurrection. And finally, the implications of the resurrection for us. Friends, my prayer this morning is that if you're struggling to believe the resurrection, or if you have not thought much about the purpose of the resurrection, or if you have not thought much about the implications of the resurrection for our lives, that today the resurrection of Christ might become a precious truth in which your heart can delight. A precious truth in which your heart can delight.
and your faith can be strengthened. Let's look at the first point, the challenge to believe the resurrection. The resurrection story begins with Mary Magdalene, who went to the tomb on the first day of the week. When she saw the, roll, the stone rolled away, her conclusion was that they have taken away Jesus. Neither she nor his disciples could comprehend the possibility of the resurrection. Her first thought was not, praise God, the resurrection. I was hoping it would happen. I just never believed it. No. When she sees the, roll, the, the stone rolled away, her first response and first thought was not resurrection. Her first thought was, oh my gosh, relocation. They've taken the Lord away. Or, at worst, grave stealing. Now, Mary doesn't think that. That may have been a possibility. All Mary thinks of is relocation. When Peter and another disciple um, go and examine the tomb, the focus falls on the presence of linen strips and cloth neatly folded, placed to the side. Why? There's not just the evidence of an empty tomb. An empty tomb could prove relocation. An empty tomb could prove grave stealing, as was common in those days. Although, by the time of, of the middle of the first century, grave stealing was a reason for capital punishment in the Roman Empire. So, an empty grave doesn't just mean necessarily the resurrection. And that's why the focus falls on the presence of linen strips and burial cloth neatly folded and put to the side. When confronted by the absence of the body but the presence of linen strips and burial cloth folded, the only possible explanation for the disciples is to believe. It says, he saw and believed. Now, here's what the gospel tells us. The gospel writer tells us a key observation in verse 9. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Here's the point. They believed by seeing the linen strips, the empty tomb, but they still didn't get it from the Scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. In other words, it should have been the Scriptures that should have informed them that their understanding of what was supposed to happen. It was the Scriptures that should have fueled their belief in the resurrection. But they failed to understand the Scriptures, and therefore they failed to believe. It's as if at this point their faith is jump-started by the sight of the linen strips, not by the understanding of Scripture. Friends, have you ever had to jump-start your car? Come on, those of you are laughing, you know it. I know it. There's a bittersweet feeling whenever you have to do that. Sweetness that finally you're able to start your car and go on with your business. But then there's a disappointment. Of, Why did it die on me? In a, in a way, that's how I, I read this account of, of, of the presence of the disciples at the empty tomb. Their faith gets jump-started. They finally believe. But why did that fail in the first place? Because they failed to understand 
the Scriptures. That's why, dear friends, the resurrection was supposed to be and understood and believed by understanding the Old Testament Scriptures, the writings of the Old Testament, and the, the teachings of Jesus Himself. That's why when Jesus shows up to the two disciples walking on the, on the road to Emmaus, do you remember what Jesus does to them? He doesn't say, guys, it's me. Look, look at my nails. Look at, look at my side. Jesus doesn't do that. You know what he does? He starts walking them through the Old Testament. Huge. The way they were supposed to believe the resurrection is by believing the Word of God in the Old Testament. And when, and when Peter goes to the book of Acts, would you open, I, I don't ask you to open Scripture uh, very often in other parts of the, of the Bible, but open to the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 25. Let's read this, I, and I'm going to take some time to work through this, because this is crucial. Acts 2, verse 25. This is Peter's uh, preaching on the day of Pentecost to the thousands of people who, who saw the evidence of the coming of the Holy Spirit on the disciples. And here's Peter preaching to them. Verse 25. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Now, what was Peter quoting there? He was quoting Psalm 16 that Austin read earlier in our service. And then Peter goes on and says, Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. In verse 31, seeing what was ahead, he, namely David, spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not to be abandoned to the grave, nor did his body decay. God had raised this Jesus to life, and we all are his witnesses of the fact. Now, do you see what Peter's doing here? When preaching the resurrection, even though they are the eyewitnesses, the first thing Peter says is not, hey, believe us, we've seen him, trust us. The first thing Peter does in preaching the resurrection is to prove to them that it was supposed to happen because it was written in the Old Testament. It was supposed, they were supposed to believe the Word of God as it came from the mouth of God through the words of David the prophet. And then look at how Paul describes the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, 3. We read this passage every time we have the Lord's Supper. But look at how Paul describes the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For what I received, I passed on to you, as a first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The resurrection of Christ, dear friends, 
was according to the scriptures. But these disciples, they failed to understand the scriptures and therefore they failed to believe the scriptures. Friend, if you're a Christian, do you stop simply at the New Testament to get the resurrection? Do you stop simply at the New Testament to get the resurrection? We shouldn't. We should understand the Old Testament as pointing to the work of Christ, pointing to His birth, pointing to His miracles, pointing to His death, pointing to His resurrection, pointing to His ascension. It's all there in the Old Testament. That's why, friends, we should value the Old Testament as part of the whole Scripture. And when we read it, don't just stop at what God did with Israel. Ask yourself how Whatever happens in the Old Testament is a pattern, is a foreshadow of Christ and of the people of God drawn from all the nations of the earth. If you're not a Christian, the idea that a man would rise from the dead is hard to believe. I I understand. Even these disciples who had the Scriptures had a hard time to get it. But the major problem why they failed to believe It was because they failed to understand God's promises. Friends, the major evidence for the resurrection is not just the empty tomb. The major evidence and power to believe the resurrection is the Word of God spoken. If God says it, can we believe it? If God says it, can we believe it? Friends, the historical evidence of the resurrection should not simply bolster our faith. The historical evidence of the resurrection should correct our mistrust in God's promises. It happened according to the Scriptures. The Scriptures should have been enough to help these disciples to believe it. Jesus' words about the resurrection should have been enough to enable these disciples to believe it. But they failed To believe God's Word. Can we believe that what God says will happen? If He is King, does this decree have any power? If He is our King, do we believe that whatever He says is true and will come to pass? Since the disciples failed to understand the King's decrees in the Old Testament, they failed to believe until they were faced with the evidence of an empty tomb and the presence of linens and a burial cloth folded. This is how at least one of the disciples came to faith. He saw and believed. He saw and believed. And some of us sometimes wonder and wish we would have been there. I am reminded of the dialogue of two theologians, one by the name of German theologian by the name of Karl Barth. Um, from Germany, and another theologian, Carl F.H. Henry, who was the founder of Christianity Today. And uh, Karl Barth, for him, he did not believe that the resurrection needed necessarily to happen historically for us to have a true faith in Christ. Um, so Carl F.H. Henry asked Karl Barth at a conference that Barth was doing here in the United States. At the end, they were having a Q&A time, and uh, Carl F.H. Henry goes to the microphone and presents himself. Hi, I'm Carl F.H. Henry, I work with Christianity Today. 
And he, he said, if, if, if we had the proofs, that if we had the, 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 the tools that our, our journalists have today to record things or have video cameras, and if the tomb had been wired, would we, what would we see? Would we, would we see the resurrection? Would that, be, would that happen? And Karl Barth did not like that question at all. And he was trying to say that those are wrong categories to bring to our Christian faith. We don't need those kind of things to believe in the resurrection. So he was trying to, to think about just going aside the, the question that was posed to him in this Q&A time. And finally, Karl Barth remembered, he said, where do you work? Where did you say you work? And Carl F. H. Henry said, I work at Christianity Today. And he said, that is Christianity Yesterday. And F. H. Henry said, no, Christianity Today, Yesterday, and Forevermore. You see, there's a, there's a sense in which, dear friends, we, we have to realize that our faith is historical in the sense that what we, we believe in things that happened in history. There's, it's true. We're not just believing some idea, crazy idea. And yet, what bolsters our faith is not if we had a camera a recorder in that tomb. What should bolster our faith is the power and authority of the Word of God. That alone should enable us to believe. Now, does that mean we should believe anything? No, not at all. Far from it. We should only believe what comes from the Word of God, from the mouth of God. That's why Christians are often called to examine and test to see if the spirits are true. So we're called both to believe but also to test. We're only supposed to believe what comes from the mouth of God, from the Word of God. That should be enough for us. Now, the disciples struggled with this reality. And, and the, the way for us to realize that they struggled with this reality was not only the disciple that Jesus loved, he saw and believed. That's how his faith was jump-started. He saw and believed. But Thomas, Thomas, get, he, misses the, he misses the first meeting. And, and the disciples tell him, hey, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas says, no, I won't believe it. Now, again, Thomas was supposed to believe the Scriptures in the first place. He fails to believe the Scriptures, just as everybody else did. But now that his fellow disciples come and, and witness, hey, it's true, it happened, we've seen it happen, Thomas says, no, I won't believe it. So a week later, Jesus shows up in their midst. And he says, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hand. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now, how did Jesus know? Who told Jesus about Thomas? He just knew. And after Thomas makes one of the greatest confessions of faith about who Jesus is, my Lord and my God, Jesus says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is Jesus' impression about seeing and believing. And in this, he rebukes not just Thomas, the disciple Jesus, believed, Jesus loved. 
So how did he come to faith? He saw and believed. But Jesus says, there is a kind of faith. There's a kind of faith that gets hold, gets grasp of the Word of God. And it's enough for that faith when hearing the Word of God to embrace that Word and need nothing else. It's not that we believe anything and everything that people want to say. No. It's that we discern that which comes out of the mouth of God. And we discern that it's coming from the mouth of the King. And He's got the power. And His decrees will happen. And we trust in that. And that's enough for us. Oh, friends, if He is King, Will we take his word for it? I love what John Calvin says about faith. Faith has indeed its own sight, but one which does not confine its view to the world. Faith is not of a right kind unless it is founded on the word of God and rise to the invisible kingdom of God so as to go beyond all human capacity. That's why, dear friends, Paul in Romans says, faith comes by hearing the message, and the message is heard through the Word of Christ. That's the kind of faith we're supposed to have. That's the kind of faith we're called to have. Oh, dear friend, I pray that the resurrection of Christ would call us to believe in Him and the gospel and the truth of what He claimed because His Word says it. But the purpose of the resurrection, we looked at at the challenge of the resurrection, let's look at the purpose of the resurrection. Two of the disciples go back home, and Mary stays a little longer at the tomb. Something great happens. Uh, two angels show up in the tomb and ask her, Woman, why are you crying? As if they didn't know. I mean, honestly. And Jesus asks the same question. Woman, why are you crying? Of course they know why. Mary, Mary's response tells us, what was going on in her mind. And we need to know. Even after the two disciples had seen the linen strips, had seen the evidence, in Mary's mind, Jesus is still dead. She says in verse 13, they have taken my Lord away, she said. And I don't know where they have put him. And then verse 15, she says again, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Do you see how even after the two disciples examine the evidence, Mary still holds on to her relocation theory? She still can't comprehend the resurrection. Now, we don't know if the two disciples have told her. We just don't know. So what Mary's interested in is simply to have access to Jesus' body. All Mary wanted was to have Jesus, even dead. Now, hearing this, Jesus calls her name, Mary. What a beautiful response. Now, this is not just a coincidence. Remember how Jesus spoke in John chapter 10, that he as a good shepherd calls his sheep by their names? This is a good shepherd, risen from the dead, and the first disciple Jesus encounters. He addresses her. By her name. At hearing this, Mary realizes that the one who asked her about the one who asked her about why she's crying was not the gardener, 
who was a good shepherd, her master, her teacher. But look at Jesus, verse 17. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Why is Jesus giving this answer? You know, if, if I could use modern language here, modern habits, especially in American culture, it's as if Mary wants to run to Jesus and hug him. And Jesus says, no, 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 don't touch me. It's, it's, a little, it's a little surprising, shocking. What is Jesus doing here by saying, do not hold me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Remember why Mary was crying? She wanted Jesus, even dead, so she could hold him, so she could have him. She wanted to have access to Jesus, holding on to him, even dead. This was her desire, a great desire. But now Jesus has risen, and yet the purpose of his resurrection was so he could be united, reunited, not with his disciples, but with his Father. Friends, the purpose of the resurrection was not that Jesus could be reunited with his disciples in that moment, but that Jesus could be reunited with his Father. Remember what Jesus told his disciples in chapter 14, that he's going to his Father's house? He told them. That's why he resurrected. Not to stick around with the disciples, but so that he could do what he said he would do, to fulfill his own words. But there's another fulfillment that Jesus is fulfilling here. God the Father promised Jesus his kingdom, and Jesus will take possession of that throne at the right hand of the Father. That's what God revealed in the Old Testament in Psalm 110. David wrote, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, who was David talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Listen to how Peter interprets this passage of Psalm 110 in Acts chapter 2, verse 31. Seeing what was ahead, he, David, spoke of the resurrection of Christ. He was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body decay. God had raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he, was, he has received from the Father the promised Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let our Israel be assured of this. Peter said, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So why did Jesus rise from the dead? So he could return to his father, so that his father would enthrone him and declare him to be the Christ and the anointed king. That's why Christ resurrected from the dead. Friends, the resurrection didn't happen just to create some special effects for our Christian lives so we could brag against other religions. Hey, look at what our founder was able to do. What about your founder? No. Christ resurrected so he could go back to his father, so his father would enthrone him on his throne, and as God would make Christ king and Lord. Oh, friends, 
That's the purpose of the resurrection. That's one of the primary. There's others, but that's the primary as described here in John chapter 20. And then finally, the implications. What does all this mean for us? We've seen the challenge of believing the resurrection. We've seen the, the purpose of the resurrection. But what are the implications of the resurrection for us if Christ has been enthroned as king on the throne of his Father? What does this mean for us? Christ's kingly power and authority has some very practical, very visible applications for us and implications. Because Christ resurrected so that he could return to his Father and sit on his throne, look at what the resurrected Christ does when he appears first among the disciples. Four things he does. First, he gives them his peace. He says, twice on the first day, peace be with you. And when he shows up again with Thomas, he says again for the third time, peace be with you. Now, this is not just a Hebrew way of greeting, although it was a Hebrew way of greeting. This time, this peace, this greeting took on a different dimension because it was given not just by any Hebrew man. It was given by the one who had just accomplished our peace with God. The greatest peace we can ever have the peace that Jesus now gives in this greeting is first and foremost our peace with God. That peace Jesus wants to give to us, to be in us. But that peace is also among us. When we have peace with God, we have peace with one another. And friends, that's why, that's why the greatest thing that we could ever receive is His peace. Not just individually, but as a community. His authority is seen in the ability to pronounce peace and to give peace. That's why, dear friends, the body of Christ are those people who gather together, who live life together, week in, week out, in the bond of peace and the unity of the Spirit. That's what the church is. That's what we do when we are a local church. We live out what Christ has given as king, peace be with you. That's why as a church, one of the greatest things we should protect is the peace and the unity we have with one another. Look at the next um, application of this divine kingship, verse 21. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Friend, because Jesus is king, he has authority to commission his disciples to represent him and to proclaim the gospel by which our sins may be forgiven. Because he resurrected from the grave. And he's going back to the Father. Guess what? Who's going to continue his mission? We. Our mission is grounded in his resurrection. Our mission is grounded in him being sent to us to die and rise again from the dead. Therefore, we are triggered. We are commissioned on this great task of taking this truth and witness it and proclaim it so that people's sins might be forgiven. Oh, friends, I hope you pray that when we, we, we realize that when we think about the resurrection, I pray that we realize there's a commission for us because Christ resurrected to go back to the Father, not to stick around with us. Therefore, we're sent into the world. Thirdly, the next thing he gives is verse 22. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, some people think this might be John's way of describing the Pentecost, but that's not true. Um, others believe that Jesus gives his disciples a foretaste of the Holy Spirit prior to Pentecost. That's a possibility. 
Others view this as a symbolic act of what will happen on the Pentecost. That too is a possibility. This verse does not compete with Pentecost. He is simply, Jesus is simply acting out what God has done in the, in, in the book of Genesis when he breathed on Adam, his breath, and started humanity. Jesus, in doing this act of bringing the Holy Spirit, he's starting a new humanity, the new Adam. He is the new Adam. And all those who are in Christ receive a new life. This is a, a way of showing symbolically that Jesus has begun a new humanity. But also this means, dear friends, that the disciples cannot carry out their mission without the Holy Spirit and the power He came to give. That's why Jesus also told the disciples, don't leave here until you get the power from high. Don't go on this commission until you receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, our effectiveness as a church is not in how creative we are. It's not in how busy we are with activities. It's not on how many members we have or how big our budget is. Our effectiveness in our church and everything that we do in this church happens primarily because of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's about Him who brings about a new birth in sinners. It's He who convicts people of sin. It's He who confronts us. It's He who guides us. It's He who comforts us as well. It's He who sanctifies us and gives us the power to fight against sin. It's He who enables us to carry the gospel. Friends, do we want to see God do great things among us? We need more of the Holy Spirit. We need to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. Not on our wisdom or power or resources. That's why we can't hope to see the Spirit use us in reaching out the lost if we're negligent and careless in how He wants to sanctify us. When the Holy Spirit comes among us, He does everything. Sanctifies us. Puts us on fire for the lost. Calls people to come to Christ. Last but not least, Jesus gives a rather interesting promise, the last one. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. What does this mean? It's incredible power that the king gives to his disciples. Remember, Jesus alone, God alone, has authority to forgive sins. The, 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 the Jewish priests had a hard time with that when they saw Jesus forgiving sins, proclaiming the forgiveness of sins on certain people. Now Jesus is giving that to the disciples what is that talking about? Well, first of all, does it mean that disciples have the power to forgive sins? In the sense of proclaiming the gospel, yes. When the, gospel, when the disciples proclaim the gospel faithfully in the power of the Holy Spirit, they have the ability to proclaim the promise of the forgiveness of sins in the name of Christ. We don't have that power inherently in us. We are simply witnesses of that power. We represent Christ on earth because Christ has gone back to the Father. But here he's also talking about the fact that this forgiving or withholding forgiveness, what is it talking about? We may understand the ability to forgive sins, but withholding to forgive sins? Well, in some sense, dear friends, I think this is talking about the life of the church, about what the church is supposed to represent. The church is supposed to represent Christ on earth. We give the gospel out. People call on the name of the Lord. They get saved. They repent. They get baptized. One of the things we do when people get baptized is we, we, want, we want to make sure that they understand the gospel and there's fruits of repentance in their lives. The Apostle Paul says in Acts 26, 20, I preached that they should repent and turn to God 
and prove their repentance by their deeds. Well, when we baptize people, we not only ask them to give us an evidence of, of their knowledge of the, of the gospel, what they believe, but we also want to see some evidence that this repentance has taken place in their hearts, some fruits of it. So when we see that, we, we baptize them. And the baptism is an actual physical promise, a washing away of sin. It's a symbol. So those who, who, who we baptize, we, there is the assurance that their sins are forgiven. But what about withholding baptism from, or withholding the forgiveness of sins from someone? Well, this happens when we excommunicate people who claim to be Christians, who claim to have repented of their sins, but they fall in sin. And that's not the reason why we excommunicate anyone. Every, every one of us sins. But when someone stubbornly refuses to repent, and they remain in that sin against God's Word. That's when we actually, after a very painful process, we actually remove their membership. Not in any sense that we send them to hell, just like baptism doesn't send them to heaven. But we're simply giving a physical symbol of removal of our affirmation of forgiveness of sins because they're no longer living a life of repentance. What Jesus is doing here is not saying that we have the power to send people to hell or heaven. No, no, no. All we're called to do is to make visible what Christ himself has declared. Christ himself is the one who forgives sins. Christ himself is the one who, who, who rebukes us, who wants to correct us. And we, the church, are his, simply his visible body of his invisible, kingly authority on earth. Therefore, friends, what Jesus does here is he's empowering the church to represent the authority, the kingship of Jesus. That kingship right now is in the heavenly realms, and it's coming down among us in ways that we, we may not see it very visibly, and yet the church is called to be the visible manifestation of the kingdom of God. The resurrection, the implication of the risen king, and the fact that he went back to the Father is that Christ has given us his peace. Christ has given us his commission. Christ has given us his spirit. Christ has given us the authority to represent him visibly on earth. What this has done for the disciples when they have seen Jesus is they rejoiced. That's why, dear friends, we sang that song at the beginning of the message, joy, of joyfulness, joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Because the resurrection leads us to joy. Let's pray. Father, we praise your name for the way in which you have declared to the world that Christ is indeed King. We thank you for his resurrection. We thank you, Father, that you have been kind in helping the faith of the disciples to jumpstart it even when they should have believed your word. Father, forgive us when we fail to believe your word. Strengthen our faith when we're weak. Enable us to believe the witness of the apostles. Enable us to believe and take your word to be true. Father, we pray that you would build us up through the power of your resurrection so that the witness of this power may be visible through our life together as a church. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.